Hello everybody and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do? Award winning again, if top three counts. We are the <laughs> top three best talk RPG podcast in the world of 2019. Up three places from last year. So it's only a matter of time before we take over at number one spot. With me as always is my DJ Baz, how are you doing Baz? Top three definitely counts. What are you talking about if it counts? Of course it does. What was I saying to you a couple of weeks ago? I don't really care about these things. <laughs> yeah, <you do. laughs> and so we did better than last year, and then you really cared. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, everyone who voted for us. It's uh, yeah. it's not gone unnoticed at Smart Party Towers. We <laughs> we opened a bottle of brown ale over that one, didn't we? We did. Yes. Thanks to everybody nominated or voted or even shared about it. Yeah. Always good to have some kind of feedback. And uh, considering that we're up against you know all the American guys and. Even Ken and Robin and people like that. It, it, there's all those kind of podcasts out there, and we got in the top three spots. Excellent stuff. And of course, congratulations to the Grognar Files, our good friends Dirk and Blythe, who got the top one spot this time. Yeah, well done, lads, and well deserved as well. You know, we voted for you. <laughs> and it also handily sort of like kicks you out of the party for next year's. <laughs> so. That's right. <laughs> they enter into the Hall of Fame game haller, so they'll be out of the way, and we can win next time, maybe. Anyway. That. Anyway. I don't care about these things. No, we don't. That's it for another year. We don't care anymore. We're going to be yeah. <laughs> pretending like we don't like scour the internet for every like or share. But anyway, due to the Grognar files doing so well, what better um, accolade can we give them and their, their achievements of going back to back in the day games than going back to one of our favourites, if not favourite, of Earth Dawn, which I think we're both. Currently cradling books that have 1994 written in them in pencil. They do, yeah. This is, um, this is. It doesn't feel like back in the day to me, but we always say this about the 90s, don't we? So <laughs> our books are like 26, 27 years old. I think that counts as back in the day. We're going to talk about a fantasy role-playing game from when uh, Dungeons and Dragons was not owned by Wizards of the Coast. It was still TSR, and it was advanced. <laughs> yeah, there used to be a Gen Con in the UK, and that was run by TSR. Yeah, that was advanced oh, yeah. as well, wasn't it? Advanced it was. state of decay. <laughs> yeah, buy, buys a pint at a current convention, and we can tell you all kinds of war stories about that. But yeah. yeah, this is like one of the games we had for um, like our university days, or just yeah. after. Yeah, it was that, that right at the that that point in time we've not started a proper career yet, so you have time on your hands. And you've got just enough money from whatever Saturday job you're doing or anything else to buy books. So a, a perfect time for us to be playing Earth Dawn. And I think our headline for Earth Dawn was always it's D&D done right. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. can put the back up some people, especially if they really like D&D. But we've not got anything against Dungeons & Dragons per se. But there's a lot to recommend Earth Dawn. And it seemed to us anyway, and certainly to me, that they took the concept of D&D but went, well, how do we make it more internally logical? And how can we explain the game and the game world that it makes sense for people to go around adventuring and things like that? Yeah, I mean, um, all of the all of the stuff that people have a pop at D and D about, and they're still doing it to this day. D and D doesn't give a monkeys, by the way; it just carries on being successful. While people say <laughs> armor class is rubbish, isn't it? Yeah, I know, but never mind. Hit points—they're rubbish, aren't they? Yeah, I know, but you know, so it works, doesn't it? I mean. 
that's always been the case of D&D. So I think Earthdawn was, um, and we will find out for sure down the line, but Earthdawn was a bit of an attempt to get into the fantasy role-playing game market when I think actually D&D was probably at its weakest. I don't know if that was in the minds of the business heads behind that decision, but um, AD&D was, was kind of on its uppers a little bit. TSR was really struggling. They had about 15 settings out. They were trying to support... Ravenloft and Eberron, not Eberron, sorry, Ravenloft and Dark Sun and Spelljammer and Greyhawk, and they had basic D&D going at the same time, and a book line and crayons and woodcuts and all kinds of crazy stuff like that. And um, bloated was is a word that I think of very often with just a huge amount of splat books. And yeah, D&D was, was just like a, a, a fat old dude sitting on the toilet waiting <laughs> to die. <laughs> and then Earthdawn came along with its sort of slick new moves and um and I think I think the design was yeah well we do like dragons and we do like dungeons and we do like having swords and spells and bards and and why hasn't D&D got a world in it again oh, well let's stick one of those in it too and and it just went down like the tick list of all the things that you really want in a fantasy role playing game and and I think to be honest mate it kind of ticked a lot of the boxes that you and I had in our heads as well it's what we yeah. would have done, I think, as gamers, to to do a fantasy role playing game that's high fantasy, but does it in the sort of style that makes it playable. Yes, yeah. I mean, I'm just in my head. I was thinking, would I want to read the rule book again? Uh, and it's a tough one because it's one of them that's got lots of spells and talents and things like that. So you don't want to read a list of those. Mm. But in my head, I thought it was like one of those classic hardbacks that we complain about now. That's got a hundred pages of history and background. I'm thinking, well. I don't want to do that. I know Earthdawn's got that. And then flicking through the book, actually, the big thing with all the how it came to pass and the history of the world and all that kind of stuff, it's about 10 or 12 pages. Yeah, It's it not hundreds of pages. It's actually, at the time, it felt like more. It's very rich. Mm. Um, but there's, it's not that much to read. You know, a dozen pages. And actually, it sells a lot of the groundwork into things you will discover in the world or the aftermath of those things, the ruins, the things you dig up from the ground. When you go in what are effectively dungeons and that kind of stuff and it sets up things like the Therans or Therans depending on how you want to pronounce it but there's a, an evil empire that's out there that's just on the the outskirts of the game world you're going to play in and there's these things called horrors which have really messed the world up and there's a reason why you don't have accurate maps to go exploring and all that kind of stuff so in those first few pages although it is a bit of a, a history dump it sets up a lot of the ideas for the future and, and the things you're going to be doing the themes of the game and I think given the brevity, actually, compared to some books today of those pages, that's plenty of background to start you off. Mm. Yeah, the old Age of Legends stuff, it's really well done. I mean, and it was well done then. I think it still stands up now, like you say, mate. There's not lots and lots and lots. So um, I I would really encourage anybody to look at it, even if they don't play Earthdawn today, even if they don't play it like best part of 30 years later. That stuff is still, I think it's, it's nearly a masterclass, really, in how to deliver what is actually quite a complex setting. Well, it's actually quite a complex game in many mm. ways. Yeah. Um, but it's it's handled really nicely. It's um it it learned a lot of the lessons on presentation. It doesn't overstay its welcome, and it definitely gives you a flavour of of what is a great world. And and I guess maybe we should start by talking about that, mate, because unlike D and D, and we will compare this to D and D a lot as we go through. We can't help but D and D doesn't really come with a world built in. It's got an implied setting. It's got some named spells. It's got a, a bit of a pantheon going on and. And it's got like a magic system which implies loads of stuff about how the setting works. But Earthdawn comes with a world, a world called Barsave. I personally think Barsave is a brilliant world. 
It's such yes. a lovely world to adventure in. I don't know why it doesn't get more press. I've, I've bounced off things like Glorantha in the past, but I feel about Barsave the way I imagine people feel about Glorantha or Tecumel, where they they really get passionate about it and, and kind of want to live in there in their brains. Um, and that's how I feel about Barsave. I think it's great. It's a, a fantastic world. I think um, the problem for some people can be is that certainly at the start, there wasn't any any book and like a good friend Bez talks about this with Glorantha that he could never get into RuneQuest because there wasn't a, like a Glorantha book that told you what the world was about it was all mm-hmm. in bits and pieces um, but the the way it's kind of handled in Earthdawn is that there's essentially been a, a scourge for a few hundred years where evil horrors from another dimension have come through and have uh, raped and pillaged the land and tortured everyone and basically it's like an apocalyptic event and most of the name giver races, so your elves and dwarves and things like that, your player character races, have all been underground and locked away. And it's only recently, in the last sort of 70 or 80 years, they've come out into the world. It's all changed. And everything's there to explore. So you've got these underground cares that everybody stopped in, which are now basically dungeons if you go exploring them. Uh, and the world um, doesn't have to be fully explained. You don't need lots of maps and roads and towns and every village named and what the the favourite craft is or anything like that because that's not what the game's about mm-hmm. it's about exploration in the proper sense that you you kind of know where a dozen cities are throughout Barsave but that's that's kind of it and then the rest of it is going away and exploring and finding things out about it but as we mentioned before about internal logic that's like kind of your players in game or the characters in game have got a reason why the players don't know anything about the world either so you kind of explore it together and it's through things like um, the kind of adventures that you can you pick up bits of the world and get to know more of the lore and history as you go along. So, although there's lots of splat books and things like there are for many of these sort of settings, uh, these are ones that took you into the game world and had specific Barsavian stuff about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was only when things like Serpent River came out that you got to like a proper decent view of what Barsav looked like. So it's probably not talked about as much because unless you've gone a few books deep or played it back in the day. Mm it's not obvious what it is if you look at a map of Barsave there's like six or seven red dots on a map and it's hard to get excited about that I think I think that's fair yeah I mean it's um, it didn't strike me at the time uh, until really quite recently but it's post-apocalyptic isn't it yes it's actually it it's Literally, actually yeah. Fallout the fantasy version because <laughs> yeah. your characters come stumbling out of a hole in the ground and they have no idea what they're going to see on the other side um, and some of it is massive irradiated desert but certainly not all of it and when you realise that other people came out a hundred years ago and they built an entire city and a civilization while you were nervously waiting behind your door going is it safe yet can we come out (laughs) (laughs) Um, or that there was a horror tapping on the door going no it's perfectly safe come on out as it's like tying a a napkin around its neck and sharpening its knife (laughs) so it's um it is a bit post-apocalyptic in that the world is all fresh and new but what a what a lovely way to to sell that to your players. That was one of the things about Earthon. It's the dawn of Earth, of course. You know, yes. is that you don't need to know anything as a player. You don't need to be front loaded with much of anything at all. You can step into this game knowing that elves, dwarves, they're they're a thing. Um, and Earthdawn's got its lovely twists we should talk about I guess the differences between mm. vanilla fantasy and what Earthdawn does. But you, you don't need to know any of that. But as soon as you start seeing all the new things that are on offer as well for you to select on your character sheets and what have you, you think, oh yeah, please, I'm going to do one of those. Uh, but but this is the genius of Earthdawn, right? If I could sum it up in one thing, it's that they make a dwarf. You want to play a dwarf. Because they do these little twists all the time. The dwarf is the most common race. 
the dwarf is the human analog in bar save you know if you can't think of anything in another game you play human in bar save that you're a dwarf I mean, that's just you're not just like a scottish miner <laughs> with a whiskey problem <laughs> which you are in everything else you're, you're like the movers and shakers you, you've got the, like, the world organized and um yeah if you play a human you're playing something slightly exotic that's cool yeah i think if there's one there's one slight rankle i've got with it and that's that um, when they're doing the stat lines for stuff humans are the zero and everybody yeah. else has moved around them <clears throat> yeah i want to be clever was to make dwarves be zeros across the board then everybody around dwarves because they're the most populous i that's think right. that's probably that's a trick they missed there but mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's definitely um it's definitely good that to have twists on things so orcs as well used to be a slave race or that kind of thing mm. uh, and they were emancipated so they've got a real chip on the shoulder about that kind of stuff but they are a player race like trolls are so typically mm. in D orcs and trolls are kind of like your go-to baddies perhaps but in this game um the trolls are like the well this sky raiders frequently so they're like vikings of the air mm. fly around in these raiding dracars and like suddenly you've got a a nine foot tall troll jumping out of the air at you with these crystal axe and Viking round shield, all very interesting. And then, of course, races like Scrang, which are like lizardmen, and Obsidian, which are made of stone. Effectively, that's what that's what they look like to the other name your races, anyway. Mm-hmm. So it's got the sort of classic tropes in there, but twisting around a little bit. And it's got some brand new stuff that was, when you were playing and you were used to the D and D races, if you could play a stone man or a lizard man or something, that was suddenly revelatory. And it's like, what's this all cool stuff I can do? Yeah. Yeah, and, and and that would happen quite a lot. That you that you you would say to people, "Do you want to come and play my game?" Oh, cool. What's it about? And you couldn't help but tell them about all the new stuff. So, Scrang, uh, super flamboyant lizard race with with tails and uh, and a matriarchal society, and they're basically pirates, but <laughs> in a really cool <laughs> way. Um, yeah, the big, the great big sort of honor poets, uh, the warrior poets of the Obsidian. Um, the orcs were super cool. I think, if I remember rightly, the orcs had this thing where where they would have one thing that would get their blood up. Like just had, one, yeah. they, they all had triggers, didn't they? Built yeah. in, built, and it could be like you know, basically like your mum, and they would just launch an attack at you. <laughs> so you could trigger their gahad. That's what it was called, a gahad. And they all had these nice little um, abilities. I know this sounds really like well what game doesn't do that well in 1993 no games did that <laughs> <laughs> that's the point you know yeah. this was this was not it wasn't revolutionary it was just it was like a it was like a a, a post-modern kind of reboot like when Battlestar Galactica came out again because they'd had a chance to think about it from scratch take mm. those old tropes and make something really fresh and new and exciting and vibrant out of it that's that's what they did with the, with the contents of like the D and D draw, really. Yeah, um, but at, but at every level, because they kind of did that with um, disciplines as well, didn't they? So they're yes. they're kind of like, if you think fighter, think magic user, it's that kind of stuff. Uh, but again, they bake it into the game so that you go around telling people that you're a third circle beastmaster, rather that's than right. having levels something that's only player facing. It's actually character facing as well. That you turn up at a village, you go, well, you know, I'm, I'm a fifth circle. Nethermancer, if you want to speak to your um, dead village elder to find out what actually happened, I can go and speak to his spirit and that kind of thing. So it, mm-hmm. it brings out those D&D things you want to do and makes them perfectly acceptable to talk about in the game world. Yeah, it does. So, yeah, and, and you're called an adept rather than an adventurer. And there is a little bit of like, here's a new name for something that you probably didn't really need a new name for. But because it gets spoken about in the world, it means you can just, your conversations as players become part of the in-game fiction. 
which is a good thing to have. So you know, mm. um, and you know, you could play, you could play a fighter, but in this game, it's called a warrior. Um, but you've also got a swordmaster, or you've got an archer. An archer is not just a warrior subtype; it's its own thing. Mm. And they do that really nice thing of saying, like, you know, you see everything through the eyes of your class or discipline which is what it is in this game so you know the yeah. archer is always about being super focused on, on having a target um, you know just very singular in their vision um, the troubadour seems ev sees everything as a potential story that's troubadour not bard by the way the, the, the bard it's okay to like <laughs> <laughs> yeah better marketing yeah yeah. I mean, I mean there's some in there that um, I sort of put some there on Twitter recently about this kind of thing but um, the archer almost feels a little bit like the archer from Hawk the Slayer if Anyone's old enough to remember that, but you know, an archer that's actually good rather than a warrior with a bow, as you were saying. Yeah. Uh, and then um, you get talents as well, which is what your adepts can use. And talents are like skills, but magically powered. Mm. So they have things like uh, stopping game, where you can point your arrow at someone and say, "You best stop there, or I'm going to mess you up." And there's actually a, a mechanical effect where you can try and stop an enemy from moving because you're pointing your bow at them and that kind of thing. So it really enforces the archetype of the disciplines by giving them the right talents to, to make them do the things they want to do. Mm. Yeah, magic's kind of... It's a high magic setting, isn't it? But mm. but it's not just like, here's some wizards wandering around. I mean, in your D&D world, the wizards would have been quashed a long time ago by governments, I think, because they're walking weapons of mass <laughs> destruction. You know, they're carrying, like, plutonium around with them for fun. But in, in this world, magic is everywhere, but it's really it's literally baked into the setting. So you were talking about how the Scourge was recently over, and that was a rise in the magic levels that was so big that extra-dimensional Cthuloid monsters could come and eat the world. And the magic has kind of ebbed away again, so the horrors are on the retreat, not completely gone, but the magic hasn't completely gone either, so everybody's got a little bit of it. So... It's, it's, it's not really a high magic world but it's a pervasive magic world yeah. so as you say when you're drawing a bead with your bow that's that's using a little bit of magic to steady your aim the warrior could be like gliding across the surface of the of, of the arena um, using you know just like hovering like a centimetre above the surface of it hover, skating on air because of magic um, and when you get to the magic using classes they wouldn't be so crass as to call them a magic user You've got your like your wizard, you've got your nethermancer, you've got your elementalist, your illusionist. It's all really well done as to what magic means without having to read pages and pages and pages about the theory of magic. Mm -hmm. It's not fancy and magic like you get in D and D. You have to you have to protect yourself against opening yourself up to the magic realm where the horrors can get you. And you, there's a reason why spell preparation is a thing because at the time in AD and D, if you want to cast a big spell, you'd have to like spend a round summoning power and not getting beaten up by monsters and Earthdawn answers that with an in-world rationale which yes. is the clever thing yeah and and regular characters can have things like tracking for example yeah as a skill but if you are a, a scout or something and you're an adept then your tracking is you see glowing green footprints on the ground of where someone went rather than looking for broken twigs because you do it via magic and that's the kind of the beauty of the characters as adepts is they've got access to that little bit more magic than normal people have, and that's what makes mm. them special. So coming up with characters is just a bunch of fun. Um, and I guess whenever we have a discussion about Earthdorm with the people who don't know what we're talking about, mate, and they get past our gushing, there's a couple of things always come up about Earthdorm. And 
The first one is what edition should I buy? And I guess we'll come back round to talking about that maybe later. For me, it doesn't particularly matter which one you do, but there you go. But the other thing they say is, weren't the rules a bit weird? And to which I say, well, maybe, maybe, but I quite like them. So once you've got your character and you've got things in there, which again, just have you nodding along when you realise you've got to write down a a social defence. You know, Mm. you can be attacked in the socials. When you start writing down things like your your karma dice, so you, you feel like you could be heroic in, in certain circumstances. It's not just, you know, you're not just some scrub fighting giant rats in a in a sewer. You're nodding along with it, but then you have to get into the meat of the mechanics. So um, the step system, people bounced off this quite a bit, still do. They, they bring it up all the time, don't they? What's the matter with people? <laughs> I can't fix people for you, but the step system's great. Yeah, so it, it sort of... Whatever step you're on is supposed to be roughly the average of the dice result. So, for example, uh, step eight is 2d6. Um, and you think, well, no, I mean, the average of 2d6 is seven, so why is it not seven? And that's because uh, dice in this game can explode as well. So if you roll a six on your d6, then you roll up again and add it on, that kind of thing. So they just move the average up a little bit. Um, and it's it's kind of... It can feel weird that as you have these steps, you go from like you know d sixty eight, d ten, d twelve, to d sixty eight, d sixty, ten, d six, and the dice keep adding up and changing shape and that kind of stuff. I think that's where people get a little bit confused. But if you look at the step number, that gives you an idea of the sort of number you're probably going to roll on your dice anyway mm-hmm. when you're aiming for a target number. So if you're rolling step twelve without even knowing what dice it is, you think as long as the difficulty is about twelve, I've got a good chance of hitting it. Mm. Now for me, I liked rolling different types of dice. And when we played in the past, or play with Pete and a different group, or all that kind of stuff, we've kind of got our favourite systems, or not systems, sorry, our favourite step numbers. Hmm. And there's always one guy who'll like a D12 and a D10, because it's two chunky dice and gives you a good bell curve in the middle, or it feels like it does, compared to the next step up, which is a D20 and a D4. But I think like, having that big, big chunky D20 is great, and the number of times the D4 saves you, because that rolls up lots yeah. of times when the D20 is rolled a two. I don't know, it just makes fun out of the mechanics of rolling dice. And you get to use all your polyhedrals all the time, as opposed to like you know, D and D for example. Certainly older versions where you had to be a certain class to have a weapon that did a D twelve damage, otherwise it didn't get used. Where in Earth Dawn, everybody gets to use all the dice, and it goes up and down all the time. Yeah, uh, and that's fun for me. I can see how some other people think. I just want to know I'm rolling this die type, and that's it. Um, but once you get your head round moving up and down steps rather than adding numbers to the dice itself, I think it's fairly straightforward. Yeah, you're right. So if you're step eight and you've got like a dice combination, which is 2d6, and if the GM awards you plus two, you don't roll 2d6 plus two. You don't do that. You add two to your step number. It's now instead of being step eight, because you've got a plus two, you're a step 10. And that gives you a different formula of dice. So that's why they're called steps, because it looks like a ladder. You've got all the different dice combinations. Um, and they're kind of obvious. They just go up through the steps. It's a D4, a D6, a D8, a D10, a D12, a D20. And then you start getting multiples of them. It, it's fine. And and that's it, it It was better than Thaco, which was what it was up against at yeah. the time. It's on every character sheet. And, and honestly, it took no time at all before you knew what you were rolling. And there was a spot on your character sheet to, to put down what your step number was anyway. So yeah. if you had like a talent at step six, you would write down step six but you'd also put down the dice code so i didn't find it onerous i thought it was one of those really overused words which is elegant but i really liked it because it was so scalable 
Um, yeah. and, it, and I think, you know, props as well to the game's mechanical designer, Greg Gordon, who wrote uh, the Megs system for DC Heroes, again, way back in the day, which was seen as, as a really lovely, um, spreadable, expandable, scalable gaming system that, that did a really good job. And, and, and I thought it was fab. I really liked the step system. It was definitely innovative at its time. It's not really survived. You don't see games using it now. Um, not really. I, I would have ported it to other systems, but I know that people, I know that people, it's not they didn't like it. I think they found it a bit intuitive, unintuitive at times. But I suppose, well, I suppose people do, don't they? So, can't fix people. I mean, it's a good point you made, though. It's something I remember is that that step chart of what dice you're off, what steps on every character sheet. Yeah. So it's just another clever little bit of design from Earth, though. And they probably thought, like, this might confuse a couple of people. So we're going to write it down for me. It's there for everybody, right in the front of the sheet, so you can work yeah. it out. And as long as you've got that chart, I don't. And and your point's well made. It's like we keep saying, right? It's like it's like they've had a look at what fantasy role playing could be like. Now we know what fantasy role playing can be like, yeah. which Gygax and Arneson couldn't do. And they looked at, well, everybody's got a set of polyhedral dice. Let's put them all in there. Mm-hmm. Those things like that. That's really good fan service to gamers. These days, whenever you buy a game, you have to go and buy a funky new set of dice, which which we lament all the time. This one relied on the fact that you probably did have a D12, which has like never really been rolled because you didn't use a great axe in D and D. So get them all out. It's not that it's not a D20 game. <laughs> Incredibly, it's not a D20 game. No, nor I'm... is it a two D6 game. It's all of the dice. Yes, which is great. And as you say, it's scalable and it gets. We're probably jumping ahead to horrors, but they're big, nasty, evil bands. They're not mm. like it's not. This is not like a cutting down swords of mooks kind of game. This is if you get to a horror, then they are oppressively strong. So when you know they're saying, "Well, this horror is going to roll a step twenty three or something," people look down at their sheet and go, "Are you doing what now?" And you get the rattling <laughs> of the dice as you've got several of them in your hand, and it it presents. Um, you can see immediately the impact. I don't know. I think I played some D and D games where you're fighting a young dragon or something, and you're a reasonably mm. high level, and it doesn't feel scary. Uh, in Earthdawn, when something's got a high step number and lots of dice have been rolled, everybody gets scared about it. You, you can yeah. see the there's a visceral feel to the way the system works that enhances the play of the game. I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely, mate. And well, I tell you what, you've opened the door to the horrors, and I think they are kind of they are kind of essential to to uh, to Earthdawn. The horrors are like right there in the background. They're the kind of the reason that Earththorn is a game, I suppose. They were responsible for the scourge. They're there all the time, and um, it's just another one of those things where it's not D and D. So the biggest bads in the system are not dragons. Dragons are there, and dragons are still a really good deal. And I guess you know, again, we could return to what makes dragons cool in Earththorn. But the horrors, the horrors were fresh to Earththorn. And I need to backtrack just a little bit more as well because I think one of the other things people say when they talk about what's in Earthdawn is what's the relationship between Earthdawn and Shadowrun? Because what we haven't mentioned yet is that this was produced by uh, I think I'm pronouncing this right, Phaser. I think the game was I think the game company was called Phaser because I think it was named after the thing in Star Trek. Oh right, right, okay. I, I think it's called a Phaser, but yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I, we'll check with a man who knows. We but, will. Um, <laughs> It's uh, the same company that made Shadowrun. Shadowrun is still enormous, by the way. It's still like you know, second best-selling game ever, or whatever it is. Um, and it's it is 
I suppose tentatively this is the fantasy version of Shadowrun, but it's not, is it? I've never got a Shadowrun vibe off of it whatsoever, even though some of the elves who are kicking around in the backstory of Earthdawn are probably kicking around in the backstory of Shadowrun. I, I didn't really get it, but Shadowrun's the sixth world and this is a different one. Did you see the links? Were they there for you? Well, they definitely weren't there at first because I might have got this wrong again. We can chat with the man who knows. But I'm pretty sure they had, there was a poll or something at one point where they said, should they link up? Ah. Like, there wasn't a definite link, I don't think, from the outset that Earthdome was definitely the history of Shadowrun. And right. I think there was a decision made at some point that it was going to be, so there was a link. And then I think they consciously might have seeded things into the games to make that happen. I think the the, the the slightly, it's not obvious, the tenuous link that was there is that the game's called Earthdawn and not Barsave. So it's like the dawn of Earth. Yes. And and the map looks like an area around the Black Sea. And Shadowrun. Oh, it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely so, Earth, but whether that means it's the same Earth that Shadowrun's become a part of. Because mm. it's not in our history, is it? No. So, uh, whereas Shadowrun cleaves to the old cities and the countries and states and mm. things like that that are there as part of the history. And that doesn't seem to naturally come out of what Bicepe is. No, um, that's fair. I, I don't know. I think Shadowrun came out about 89 or something, or mm-hmm. it was a few years earlier. But this is, I think this is just like their fantasy game. So they probably had it in mind to link the two up, but how obvious they're going to make that, I think, was a wait and see thing. I'm not too fussed about linking it with Shadowrun in particular. It doesn't bother me one way or sure. the so the horrors, then that was Earthdawn's own thing, wasn't it? I didn't see them in Shadowrun, and no. and the horrors are there. There's a bunch of them, and some are small and some are big. But these are the Griblies. Um, again, I didn't really notice it at the time, but people have said that they're Cthuloid. I can kind of see that now. I can kind of see, but but it's tenuous. I would. I don't think they are. No. Okay. Okay. They're big bads, though. Yes. <laughs> and they do nasty things. They don't just punch people. That's that's the thing I like to yes. about. The, wor- the worst use of a horror in the game is just go and punch someone. Not yeah. when you can do a thing called a horror mark. That's where the game gets played. Yes. So horrors tend to corrupt communities, and although there are some smaller ones, as you said, that get um, their sustenance from causing pain uh, to people, there's more of the kind of like causing anguish and misery and people to betray their loved ones and that kind of stuff is where the interesting horrors get their juice from. Um, and that magical level that Baz was talking about earlier that's kind of gone away from the world that makes people think it's safe to come out of the, the protected cares again, it never quite went down to the absolute bottom. There's still just a little bit of magic extra left in the world. So that's enabling these uh, powerful entities to still be around influencing things, even though they're not really around eating mountains or anything like that. So the kind of insidious background thing that horrors are behind stuff or corrupting people or coercing folk into doing things they don't want to because they think they might be able to save themselves and all that kind of stuff that's all good um, but, and there's also like secret societies and people worship um, mm-hmm. the passions which are a little bit like gods but not really and they walk the earth or walk by save and there's all kinds of other stuff that ties into it as well with things going on in the background that may or may interact with your character although horrors are the big thing that drive a lot of the, the adventure and you're supposed to go away and get one I suppose is one of the first goals you think of that you'll build up to Mm. Um, they're not like big bads in terms of let's go and fight one every week are they they're more kind of background orchestration of other things happening until at the end of an arc probably is when you want to meet a horror and have a big uh, end of campaign or end of story fight or something or work out a way of defeating it in some clever way rather than trying to punch it in the tentacles yeah because 
the question that we always ask is what do you do in the game and and Earththorn gave you loads of things to do in the game but without being maddeningly ambitious and vague about it at the same time saying you can do anything they, yeah. they, there was stuff you could do so you could be uh, you could be the explorers or scouts who are trying to make a new world you could be the explorers or scouts who are trying to map the new world you could be resistance fighters we should talk about the therans in a minute you could be monster hunters you could be horror hunters that's the thing you could do so you could play like your hack and slash campaigns going into cares um, treasure we need to talk about treasure as well oh god there's so many things that you can't just go with bar save there's magic items because that's just the start <laughs> of a conversation that we need to have you, can, you can't just say anything about bar save without it opening up a, oh and here's the cool thing about it yeah. Do you want to take take one, guys? Take take a favourite thing, mate. What do you want to do? Do you want to do items? Oh, items are good. Yeah, they are. But let's so let's talk about magic. You've mentioned getting um, magical energy. So astral yes. space is where a lot of horrors are, but it's also where lots of good juju juice is to power your spells. And as you said, it's not advancing magic. If you want to draw down power from astral space, you can carry on casting spell after spell after spell. So that's good. Sometimes you have to be careful and channel that through matrices so it's purified and you don't let off a big astral flare and all the baddies know where you are so they can come and get you but that, that kind of idea of weaving threads it's called to get extra energy uh, everyone can do that if they've got some magical ability like all adepts do so all the player characters so the idea is that you don't just pick up a magic sword called the purifier you won't know what it's called you'll get you might get an idea it's magic and it might look rusty when you start, but you weave a thread to it, and you have to find out more about that sword. So perhaps when you find out it's called Purifier, that will boost the amount of damage it does, and then you might find out who the original smith was that forged that weapon, and at that point, it'll give you a bonus to your physical defence. And then there might be a deed you have to do that it was used at one point to kill a certain baddie, or you know, a certain location that it was blessed in, so you have to go on a deed and go and do that thing, reliving what happened to the sword originally, to then unlock even more powers. So it kind of stops that thing in D&D where you throw away your plus one sword when you find a plus two sword, and that one goes in the bin when you found a plus three sword. You stick with the same sword, or magic item, whatever it might be, and as you know more about it and gain knowledge or do things with it that other heroes have done, it unlocks more powers. So you've got the same thing, you've got an attachment to it, and it gets more and more powerful as you do as a player, or a character rather. So your magic items become unlockable, which to put it in very kind of mundane sense, but also they give your GM a whole series of quests to drop in front of you which you want to go on because you want to know what's going on with your thread items. Yes. Which is just as clever as anything. You don't just pick it off of an NPC's body and stick it in your golf bag of magic swords. You, ha you go have it, it propels you forward into the game. Um it's it's so clever, and and you do you see remnants of this in other games in the decades since with some artifacts and what have you, but these are things that you drop into people's hands in the very first adventure, and they'll still be using them twenty circles later when they retire in their character and they're you know bestriding the world like a colossus. That dagger still matters. Yes, and it's um you build the legend up about, it, and that's what they don't call them experience points in the game. You get legend points. Uh, and if you as a player physically write down what you've done uh, and your character takes that document to the Great Library of Thrall you get more legend points for it so you actually get more <laughs> level ups in the game by taking part as a player and writing your story down and talking about it and telling other people and building your legend and your items are part of that but yeah you touched on something there about like you can't just pick it up and put it in your golf bag 
that's the beauty of it when you have um, adept versus adept fights like you do in uh, potentially an infected one of the games by Robin Laws where there's um, a weapon called Dorita Silktail Whaler I believe mm. which is like a sword and a big uh, black silk cord that an orc swordmaster starts throwing at you and stabbing you from metres away uh, well if you do defeat that orc and take his sword it's just a sword with a silk scarf on it as far as you're concerned you need to go through mm. the steps that that adip had done to build up that legend to be able to use it in its way otherwise the sword doesn't fly and scream and do all the things and return back to his scabbard like it did for the orc you've got to build that legend up you can't just kill someone and turn their stuff and use highly powered magic items you need to put the effort in and, and in that specific example you, you kind of know the end of that sword's legend because you just defeated the bloke you took it from so you might know the last step to unlock but you can't unlock it till you find out the history of it the things it's done in the past so you have to like I don't know go and visit a sage and go where was this blade forged go and find out where it was forged see what happened to its sister blade it's all just it's just you pick up a dagger and all of a sudden you've got a campaign Yeah. every time you get a magic item and it's not even it's not even onerous it's not even like oh my goodness now now, now I can't do my own campaign because everybody's running off doing their own thing because you can have group patterns and you can have group items and there's reasons for your band to stay together and if somebody goes missing that like severs threads and so on it's all just it's everything you want to do mechanically everything you want to do and every little trope that, that D&D glosses over happens in the fiction of your world 1993 ladies and gentlemen <laughs> oh, I say it again <laughs> and you can, you can kind of tie the deeds back into the game world to so have mentioned these cares underground and probably you've been out for a couple of generations perhaps say when you're adventuring well you might go to that sage that Basil's mentioned he says oh well, you need to go to the village of Cherry Tree because that's where you know this hallmark says it was built and you go back to that village and it doesn't exist because all the people are still underground in their care and locked away and when you are banging on the door saying I need to ask your librarian something they're like fuck off you're a horror you're not fooling us we're staying down here and then you can have a whole adventure about how do you manage to cogs people out and say it's safe enough or what do you do about that um, so you've got a whole different type of fantasy game which is relevant to your character What's, he's got a reason to want to get in there this yeah. isn't an adventure that someone's thrown at you where a wizard said can you get in this place for me and find out the secret password it's you know it's all constantly tying back and recall to all the things you've done and things you want to do and oh it's all yeah. good Baz I'm frothing now it's calm down <laughs> So, I think one of my favourite bits as well, just that just reincorporates the knowledge of what's going on in games, is um, the gods of Bar Save are well, you know, typically they're not like your average gods. <laughs> so, they're called passions in this game, and they're called passions because they are what the name givers, the civilized races, is what gets people excited. So they they become real things, and that might be love, it might be money, um, it could be war. So all the typical portfolios of gods, it's not just a reskin, they become the passions, and they are things that people worship and pay fealty to and what have you. There's 12 of them, and you know the portfolios look pretty standard, and they do have questors, which would be the equivalent of clerics, although that's not a discipline in and of itself, it's something that anybody can do, so you could be a questor of Minbruge, but also a warrior. Yeah. Um, that's a thing. And then here's the bit that I love. The horrors, that scourge thing that happened, has just like bled into everything. So in the hundreds of years that the name givers were like in cares or under domes or um, being protected or hiding, just keeping their heads down essentially, the passions, they couldn't go and night hide in the cares. So by the time you know the name givers come back out, 
into the world. Three of those passions have actually been done over by the horrors. That's how good horrors are at making things bad for people. They could take on the equivalent of gods and corrupt three of them and get them to join their side. So by feeding on their pain and their fear and their anguish, they've managed to turn like you know the passions to things like manipulation and deceit. And what's really kind of, it's a little bit deep, I suppose, but they're like human passions, our passions, but have just been twisted a little bit for darkness, for, for you know, to the dark side, as it were. Yeah. So now you've got mad passions. They're called mad because they've, they've literally gone mad. They've been corrupted by the horrors. So now you've got mad questers. But this is so much better than just like dark gods. These were once great gods. They were, they were noble passions that have just gone a slightly too far. Mm. I mean, and this, this is getting quite deep at this level, but but that's that's just another really cool thing that how can you not get excited about that kind of stuff in your game? Yes. Yeah, it's not just like you've got anti-paladins and the evil god. It's like, no, they were just nice gods. <laughs> like a real, mm. But they got messed up, and, and now they're causing real problems. So what are you going to do about that, if anything? Yeah. And yeah. Um, one of the organisations or groups, I suppose, that's like taken some of the mad passions teaching on board, as if it's... Um, still good and proper teachings, I guess, is um, Ferrer, as we've mentioned, or the Ferrans, or Therans, depending on how you want to pronounce it. But um, they've kind of like gone with the whole slavery angle that one of the passions now endorses and that kind of thing. But as with any group of this sort of nature, like they don't think they're wrong. They think they're right in bringing peace and civility to the world. So as part of the history of Earthdawn um, is that at one point, this whole area of Bicep was under the control of the Therans. It was just one of their provinces. And they had... Um, a centre called Parlenth, which we could get into possibly if we've got enough time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Scourge came along and they're cleared off, and now they've come back again. Now the Scourge is over to say, All right, they're bringing you to start paying your taxes again, we're going to move a governor in, and the rest of Barsev's going, What are you talking about? You, you've not been here for 500 years, we don't know who you are, get out. So, right in the bottom corner of the map, you've now got the Therans as well with their mighty airships and flying castles and things like that who've turned up going. Well, we're going to be boss of all you again, so you need to start getting used to that idea. And there's been a bit of a battle that's kind of like caused a stalemate at the minute. But another good thing about Earth Dawn in the background, as the adventures start coming out, is they start a ticking clock. And that that sort of like group of bodies down who's just down in the bottom corner and are in the history books start to become really relevant to the campaigns that you might play. Mm. Uh, and uh, one of the books, Prelude to War does it in a broad brush kind of story arc thing so it's not a campaign book with a number of dungeons listed or anything like that it's like these events are going to happen to this game world we've told you about do with it what you will you know this is going to set things mm-hmm. off so the world that your characters explore and get used to things start happening whether their players do anything about it or not and I think that's just for the time it came out was another great idea yeah it's um, I think if you got in on the early days which we did you would you'd play your like horror hunting games You'd go round marauding and mapping and exploring and fighting orcs and, and eventually fighting small horrors, then big ones. But then stuff started ticking, didn't it? Yeah. And it? And it came out in supplements and just on websites and what have you, nascent websites at the time and fan publications. Um, but yeah, that, that clock that started ticking, I could see how you might not want to... That might be a bit intimidating if you want to jump in later on because the 90s was the decade of the meta plot. Mm. But, it, but it was... But it could all be pushed into the background yeah. if you wanted, or it could be brought right into the foreground if you wanted. Um, I mean, there was a there was such an enormous amount of source books came out for this game. Looking back, I am absolutely staggered by how much product got released for what I think is a game that's almost in the footnotes of, of gaming history. I mean, 
we talk about it we've talked passionately about it for an hour now but i don't think it's that big of a deal in gaming history but you look at the amount of product that came out for it it's there can't be many many games that have had so much stuff um and i could see how that might have been a bit intimidating yes like there was no shortage of no shortage of stuff written by people like carl Sargent, like robin laws you know top grade writers and artists as well with a real vision this was a super supported game that 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 clearly had a life and in its first edition run it got to within one or maybe two books of everything that was planned for it yeah um, and it's been picked up since so the whole thing's available i like it that it's all there now yes the, the good thing about the probably tour was by that point they'd kind of done more or less anything they could do with by save and that was like, well, you know everything now, so let's start, let's start shifting what's happening in that world to give you something to do. And as, a, as if you were playing along, as you said, then that made that great. But um, some of the earlier books, even rather than just having uh, a gazetteer of Barsay, for example, you had Serpent River, which was I think about 128 pages, which gave you some loads of stuff on Scrang and the, the river pirates that we've talked about, the lizard men, and what they're getting up to. Uh, a bunch of different factions for them, and kind of different families and how they interact. Uh, every paragraph had an adventure idea in it or a cool scene idea or a scenario like, I love reading that book there's just tons of cool bits in it and it starts talking about this pilgrimage route and how thirsty it is with these multi-layered waterfalls and this sky forest uh, forest river and just honestly you read through that book and there's just idea after idea after idea and because the separate river does kind of a reverse sea round by save it gives you loads of ideas about different parts of the, the world as well Without having to go like you know a big AA or RAC atlas, road atlas, saying this is what's in the world. It's just like here's lots of cool adventures, and this is where you go to get it. Like, well, these are the seeds of adventures, and you know good reasons to go on the Seventh River and find cool things to do. Yeah, or you can zoom in. I think one of my favourite sort of supplements was the Parlength box set. Parlength is a was a city in Bar- in Barsave, which took the <laughs> slightly out there. Um, option of avoiding the scourge by removing the city from this plane of existence and simultaneously casting the world's biggest magic spell that made everyone forget it had ever existed so it wiped itself from all knowledge including everything that was ever written down about it it's like taking i don't know berlin out of our world and not only it's not like there's a smoking hole anymore it's just never there and no one remembers it ever being there and there's no record of it ever being there and you won't find it on a single map or in, in you know everyone's photo camera rolls won't have any photos of Berlin in it it just doesn't exist it wiped itself um, and, <laughs> and uh, spoiler alert the horrors got them anyway <laughs> so so when it came back to Parlane it was all fucked up because the horrors had eaten it and now it's just a great big adventure site you know akin to the big rubble from RuneQuest I guess with an adventurer town bolted onto the side of it and loads and loads of faction play and interesting shenanigans going on and in a town full of adepts trying to like work out how, how their swords can get even bigger <laughs> yeah if it was Deadwood the TV series if it was set in a fantasy world it's yeah. similar like yeah Torgak is called the guy that runs the place and him and his adventure party carved out a little corner a pile of length and now he basically runs it as an out well west sheriff and takes mm-hmm. a cut of everybody's earnings but there's a, again there's a reason you've got a dungeon and there's a reason why there's a camp next to it that's got lots of supplies you might want to buy before you go back in again and a safe place to rest up and it's all things you did in D&D anyway but just making it mm. game worthy as well elves right elves yes <laughs> blood elves I or just normal elves 
Well, exactly. I'm not a fan of elves in most games because most most games it's just an excuse to be like slightly good looking and, and brilliant at everything. It's like you know, I do that in real life. Why would I want to do that in a game? <laughs> um, so, uh, oh, blood elves, right? So again, um, responses to the oncoming scourge. Okay, so you've got this uh, worldwide existential threat coming. What are you going to do? Loads of people go and dig holes in the ground, like you know, kind of like a arc ships I suppose aren't they or uh, generation ships mm. that seems to be the standard MO Parleyf does its weird and wacky one that doesn't work the elves because they're arrogant proud haughty and aloof as elves are they decide they're not hiding for anyone but what they do decide is that if horrors feel on pain well if they give themselves enough pain then they won't be tasty morsels for horrors anymore so they enact this huge ritual which makes thorns pop out of their skin so they're constantly in agony 24 hours a day and then all of a sudden, horrors are like turning up their noses out and going like, "Oh, actually, yeah. Well, you're a little bit like Tapenard. I'm not sure about you anymore." <laughs> bit blunt. <laughs> yeah, you just you haven't got the spice. So, but they've they've subjected themselves to this ruinous self-sacrifice in order to live. And it's like, well, now we're talking about elves. There's blood dripping out of them twenty-four-seven, and they've got like rose thorns sticking out through their skin, and they still think they're beautiful, proud, haughty, aloof, and still the best. Um, they're nutters. Every every corner you turn, it's like, whoa, that's a good idea, and it's gameable as well. It's not just background stuff; it's actual gameable content. Yeah, yep, correct. So yeah, the, the Skranga mentions different uh, groups and families and stuff like that. It's like one of the families has allied with the Ferrans and things like that, and is mm-hmm. is down with the whole slavery thing and goes capturing other people to bring back to sell to the Ferrans and that kind of stuff. Uh, and one's a band of uh, pirates that remain silent. And have giant otters as their pets that slink on ships <laughs> and kill people. I mean, there's all kinds of weird and wonderful stuff in there. But for some reason, even things like giant otters seem to make sense when you're reading Earthdown books. I don't yeah. know why. If I read it in another book, I might think it was ridiculous. But when I read it in Serpent, yeah. I was like, oh, well, that makes sense. Because, you know. Yeah, can... fly, flying castles sounds ridiculous, but till you realise they're basically a Death Star or a Star Destroyer yes. coming up over the horizon. And then it makes all kinds of sense. So it kind of alternates from like, that's the worst idea ever, or the best, best idea, idea ever. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. If one of your allies has been captured and is held up on a, a Theron behemoth that's hovering over Barsav, and you've got to get up there on a Jakar by convincing the Sky Pirates to take you up there and infiltrate him to get him out. I mean, like, <laughs> he doesn't want to play that. That's an amazing yeah. idea. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The game's full oh. of them as well. There's, um, it's not without its missteps, though. No. I think we've got to be honest, mate. All right, and, and uh, we've been gushing True. a lot here. Um, yeah. We've got we've got to like fifty odd minutes without saying the windling word. Oh, balls! <laughs> <of sight. laughs> I've got a problem with windlings. <laughs> Several problems. Fundamentally, it comes down to I don't like trickster type races or classes or whatever. Anyway, in any game, and they're supposed to be like you know they always take the mickey out of people, and you can't quite catch them because they're too fast and stuff. So that doesn't appeal to me. The main problem I have with them is that, that mechanically they get far too many advantages. So they're, they're, they're broken in the parlance of gamers, I guess you'd call it, for what they are. Given they're supposed to be like 18 inches tall, they can actually take quite a bit of damage and deal a lot out. And when you've got the denizens of Earthdawn books where everybody gets like a special class that's just for them, some are better than this, some are pretty useless, the winners get three new ones rather than just one. And that, it's that kind of... They were obviously a designer favourite or something, uh, but for me they don't really fit very well into the world and I hate the whole thing about oh well you know you can't upset a, a windlink even if you're a troll sky rider it's like that doesn't, doesn't seem right it doesn't gel with me whereas lots of other things in the game seem to have an internal logic 
the fact that they're game-breakingly good yeah. uh, and supposed to be just great and everybody loves them as well. I they feel like the elves of Earthdome, basically, as they would be in another game. Yeah, they're the comedy race, aren't they? And and unfortunately, they're only ever played by knobs. You know, sorry guys, but you know, if you, if you choose to play that, you, you've got an agenda, and it's not going to sit well for long term campaign fun. <laughs> I mean, they're quite good fun when they're the slave race of the Theorans, and they're just employed to like you know carry cloaks and stuff, or you like the tiny little bones crunching under your feet when you're going through a dead wind in care. Do I? Uh... That's kind of nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I recently ran a game uh, of King of Dungeons set in the Earthdome world. So they have a place, and that's one of your classes. Is the like the mage can have a familiar, yeah. and you give it certain abilities. So it could be fly to whatever else. I was like, "Kill, well, your familiar's a windling." There you go, and that seems to make sense. So for that kind of role, I think there's definitely a place for the game world. It's just as a player mm-hmm. race. I don't think they, they just don't sit well with me. Yeah, well, apart from anything else, they can fly, uh-huh. and they've got astral sight, <laughs> and they get the biggest oh. carbon dice, and you know, and 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 and. Yeah, 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 and they say squee a lot. Oh dear! Right. Anyway, well, we, you that. can avoid windings, you know. That's yeah. fine. All right. The game's not perfect, and and you know what? There might be other things too, like twenty, twenty six, twenty seven years down the line. Some of those, some of those mechanics can look a little bit stodgy sometimes, and and maybe that when when you're playing the game and you realise that you've got disciplines and talents, and you know, there's not a whole lot to do on your character sheet apart from like being an adventurer, perhaps, arguably. But yeah, I don't know. Of its time, definitely. Would I play it again with it with its current rules? Well, I don't know. Probably. Why not? Yeah, I mean, I ran it last year, and the common view, including my own, was like it's a bit too clunky now. Yeah, like there's a lot. There's still lots to to recommend it. Don't get me wrong. People should have a go to make up their own minds. But yeah, it was given modern sensibilities. There was a point with the fight with some slavers. Where it just it got to like almost a stalemate, where people were kind of running out of wounds and they'd spent all the karma, and the bad guys weren't doing much better, and it all felt a bit like I think one player actually one player went, "Is there any chance they're just going to run away?" <laughs> and it was kind of like, "Do you know what? Make a social check. Let's see if you can, you know, intimidate them. Please make the roll. Yeah. That kind of thing." But so the, I, I mean, I think you could take things from say thirteenth age or something. And include some kind of escalation die or you know put some limit on the the number of rounds you fight or whatever it may be. I think if you're going to run it, just bear in mind it is of its time, and you probably want to make some tweaks to speed it up, make it smoother, take some of the complexity out, possibly. Yeah, I mean, actually, you know, I'm sure loads of people will be running off now to to eBay and to drive through to look at what's what what's there to to glance at and have a look at and. And I think the, another big question that people come up with, and they always do whenever I see Earthdome mentioned on forums, is what edition should I look at? Because it, it, it had a really good run for the first edition that lasted for some time. And then Phaser did just kind of like say, well, we're not doing that anymore. And, and it's fair to say it's been picked up by a whole bunch of people mm. still, and it's still a live game. This is still a game that you can get supplements for. There's still stuff coming out. I, it would be very easy to lose track of editions since we, we've been talking pretty much about stuff you'll find in first edition but it's all there in all the other ones too but I'm I'm out of the loop on what's been going on with it and I find it confusing to try and see what's going on now do you know where it's at right now mate? Uh, no it's back with whatever the current edition of Phaser is the, I think they're running again there's an Earthdome Legends as well which I think uses a completely different more story game based system mm-hmm. uh, yeah. as well 
to be honest, getting I've got like at least three editions of it. Buying into it, another edition of it is not something I need to do. So I've not kept right up to date with it. And I, I always recommend if people ask, get the first edition, the one with the the mist swamps sort of milky statue on the front, like half up to its or, mm. or water halfway up its face, if you will. Um, that you're showing me now that other people can't see, but it's easy enough to find on the internet. Um, yeah, the first edition of Earthdawn's perfectly fine. I don't think the newer editions change it enough to make much of a difference. So mm. you're probably as well getting an edition you want, to be fair, but I feel like the original is the best in many ways. It's the most accessible, isn't it? Because yeah. you've got bar saving seven pages, you've got the world in ten pages. It's 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 all there. It is. And like so if you got if you got the Earthdawn book and you buy Infected as an Adventure by Robin Laws, that's a non-standard fancy adventure which shows you some of the things that Earthdawn's about and has the Grim Legion and some other things in there uh, and mentions the dragons I think at one point possibly and other things so that's a good adventure for getting you an idea of what sort of game you can play and then something like Serpent River to give you an idea of the world uh, and you're getting those second hand I think you've got like quite a lot of stuff to go out there already and that's that's going to be like a nice little bundle um, the only thing like with newer editions the only thing that sticks in my mind is things like uh, they've taken out D20 and D4 so you only use the middle dice types right. and the step system just doesn't look right to me now it probably works fine the averages probably work out around the same you've probably got, probably got a bit more of a bell curve so the results are more reliable rather than swingy mm-hmm. yeah but, but it loses a bit of the flavour maybe yes uh, I was happy with all the dice types um, so for me that's an example of the thing I'm saying where they've made that change but you're still using a step system, so if people have got a problem with step systems, this, that problem still exists. Yeah. You've just taken a couple of dice away, so you've made a change which isn't really improving anything, but it has made a change that makes it more difficult for players who played the old version. So a lot of the iterations were like that for me. The, the changes were small enough to not be worth doing, while also being irritating if you played a previous version. Um, so they're all pretty similar, the versions, but you know, take your pick. Go with first for my money if it's cheaper. I think so, and see if that floats your boat. I mean, what I think what what most people seem to want to do these days, but I don't know if people have ever gone too far with it, is they keep thinking, let's do this in 5th edition D&D, let's do this in 13th Age. I mean, well, you've done it in King of Dungeons. Yeah. I mean, pick your rule system, mm. frankly. I think you would be... You, you do have to do slightly more than just do a conversion. If you if you want to do it with, like, I don't know, the RuneQuest mechanics, I'm sure you could. I mean, it's all there, but... But as we've been saying for the last hour, those mechanics are so tied into the setting and the play style and everything else. I think it's probably a bigger job than most people think to do conversions. It's easy enough to think of like, how would I represent a Scrang Swordmaster in my game of choice? Yeah. But by the time you get down to thread magic and weaving mm-hmm. patterns and and just stuff about legend points and troubadours and all of the other stuff we've mentioned. It's it goes through it like like words through a stick of rock. It's kind of hard to pull it out, um, yeah. and certainly nobody ever went the other way and thought I'm going to use the Earthdawn system to power Blue Planet or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And we, we didn't really go into creatures and stuff like that, but they can be quite complicated. And yeah. I sort of alluded to uh, fighting another group of adepts. Like <clears throat> that is hard work. Massively, yeah. you know, it's, it's good fun. It makes for an interesting scenario or encounter. But actually, as a GM. It's it's a whole lot of talents and things and moving parts to keep your head round to try and make that mm-hmm. happen, uh, and even regular fights that you have, might have with orc scorchers or 
Britans or just basic creatures, the, quite often the creatures have some other special ability as well and quite a few different numbers, like three different defences, a knockdown value, mystic armour as well as regular armour, maybe a spellcasting ability or something else. Um, so it's quite um, an intensive game in terms of doing that kind of stuff. So something to be aware of. If, that's, if you don't like doing uh, homework or bits of maths or a bit of prep or something, then it's probably not going to be the game for you in its current form. But still a lot to recommend it in terms of just background and ideas for a setting for 1330 or something. If you can if you can get a chance to visit Barsave as a gamer, I think you should. I think if you've been into gaming for any kind of length of time at all and you, and you want to consider yourself well-rounded and well-read, you, you need to do, you need to knock around a Glorantha for a bit. You need to knock around the official Traveller universe for a bit. You need to go to Greyhawk. You'd be remiss if you didn't have Bar Save on your bucket list. It's a fabulous setting. There's so much to it, but it's so accessible. Just start by opening up that care door and see what happens, and and just have your your expectations dumbfounded by the neat little twists that make it an adventurer's setting rather than a set of novels or a movie or something that was designed for something else but we've tried to role play in it this was designed as a role playing setting one of the first to do so explicitly to do that place to go adventuring in and it stands up brilliantly even now yes agreed there's lots of bits in there that now you probably look at and think that's over engineered why have you got these extra bits in why do I have to do that but it's just a product of its time so you can revel in the good bits as Baz has said uh, and you know there's so many source books that you've talked about as well if you just want to get a flavour of uh, the world you can pick up all kinds of books just to read around it and think of things to nick and using your other games oh well Earthdawn we missed thee um, I don't know if it's going to come to my gaming time in time again soon but but every time we talk about it mate I flick through my old stuff and um, it gets the juices flowing I can see just as we've been talking for last hour I can see how much of this has leaked into King of Dungeons mm. I think there's actually an enormous amount in there which I hadn't realised until we were talking back through it about being adventurable and just some mechanical stuff and some world setting stuff it's definitely it's definitely one of those games that for me on my personal gaming journey it, it made a massive massive difference it kind of prompted me to write articles I wanted to write about this world I was in on the ground floor and I felt like I was there I know that for you games like Slay Industries did that at the same sort of time it just made you think this is a great thing for me and and I sent off stuff and got published in Valkyrie magazine and, and arguably that kind of led down the journey of just writing for different people and, and yeah, becoming becoming known as, as someone who's into gaming really it's it, it really spurred me on and very few games have done that uh, put like over the edge would be one of them. Um, Earthdawn is definitely one of them, and Thirteenth Age latterly. So, yeah, there's there's a few games, aren't there, that just mean a great deal to you because they you, they've spurred you on and they just fit with your style. And Earthdawn did that with me in Spades. Yeah, same for me. I think one bit of the book that we probably skipped over early was um, they've got a short story called Inheritance, which mm-hmm. is a story of three guys going down into a care, and uh, there's a picture of a troll. The, the, the legend and eighth says Loin was an unhappy troll <laughs> and as you read the rest of the adventure you go well that was just the start of his problems but that little short story gives you an idea about what the game could be about and it's you yeah. know it's not um, a how to play this game example where someone's trying to climb over a wall or pick a lock it's like here's three or four pages of dealing with a horror you're welcome like, <laughs> this is yeah. this is Barsev and Earthdawn welcome into our world uh, I think that's yeah. a really nice touch 
and, and the artwork will hit you as well. Jeff Lorbenstein was my favourite artist in this. They use may, may, way more than one artist, but it's definitely a style that rocks all the way through it. Um, it's, it's got a really good visual aesthetic. Um, the game is presented first time round was black and white throughout for a 330 page book, but had colour plates in it like games used mm. to have as little inserts and a, and a big fold out colour map in the back. I mean, oh, it's just it's classic. This is what a role playing book should look like. <laughs> you know, this is it. I don't get that excited by the fifth edition player's handbook, but you can't. But you're leafing through Earth and you think these is what this is what books were like in the day. It's made for gamers, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. it's, like, it's like it's like my golf it's a driver's car it's that kind of when you sit and you think yeah somebody likes driving made this car and it's that kind of thing with Earth you think yeah somebody likes playing games made this <laughs> thought yeah. about it and it just makes yeah. sense yeah cool right well we've got a couple of questions to go away and ask some experts so we should go away and find a man to speak to about that and come back with some answers maybe yeah we probably should I mean I don't know are any of those guys still around it's been a long time. It has. Well, let's Maybe see. we can get them back together for one more quest. <laughs> let's see what we can do for our dear listeners. They did vote us the third best podcast in the world, let's not forget. <laughs> the second best podcast in the world is not talking about a 26-year-old game. I'm, I'm gambling. Oh they, No, well, they were talking about Ebron. That's, that's the only reason they beat us, because they're current and hipster or something. <laughs> we'll catch them up. Okay. Listen, we've done over a hundred episodes, but we talked about Earththorn in nearly every single one. But it's about time you had your special on it, I think, guys. So treat yourselves, go and check it out. Um, we're going to find out a little bit more. We will return to Bar Save, but we would love to know what your journeys in Bar Save have been about. Maybe you were there too. Maybe you were playing through the nineties. Uh, maybe you are a recent convert to uh, to Bar Save or Earththorn in general. Maybe you're playing some new editions. You played some of the other variants on it, or Maybe even now you're you're busy rolling up an obsidian warrior uh, and taking it into battle, um, or you didn't. What made you bounce off of Earththorn? Was it the windings? I bet it was, wasn't it? But maybe there was something else. Why, why did why didn't why didn't Barsave get the the kudos it deserved? Why isn't it talked about in the same terms as Garantha? I would like to know what people think about that from your perspective, because our perspective is so rose tinted it's ridiculous. Yeah, and if you are playing the new new Earthdawn. Maybe you've come to this like it's Star Wars episodes 7, 8 and 9 you think that's what Star Wars is because you don't remember the old 6 or certainly the original 3 and then the remakes <laughs> this is like the, the final 3 and it's J.J. Abrams with Lensflare and stuff and you think it's exciting tell us what the new Earthdawn's like if you played it and what's there with things like Earthdawn Legends or if you ported it into a different setting we're mm-hmm. sort of saying that the, the system's baked into it but if you've done something different do let us know dear listeners and uh, we shall examine it for our own delectation. So that just leaves us with some thanks. Uh, we will return to this subject, but in the meantime, you know, again, huge thanks to those of you who took the time to vote on Ian World's poll. We, Gaz and I were humbled and delighted to see how we did. Congratulations again to Dirk Blythe and all the rest over at the Grogdown Files. You know, good skills, lads. And our mighty patrons for keeping us on the straight and narrow, keeping us on the web for that matter, and keeping us talking into these microphones. Thank you so much for every quid you chuck in the tip jar. Hugely appreciated. Yeah, thanks very much, everybody, and we shall see you shortly with more oral goodness. Bar forever. Bar forever.